Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacked. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... It is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy. Very good. Well, well, what dramatic political weather we've seen in the last few days and weeks. Lockdowns easing ever so slightly as patients runs short, prompting hospitals to worry about patients running thick and fast. And still so-called freedom activists clash with police and behave in a way guaranteed to slow the return to free movement of association. A cabinet minister finally falls on his sword. A pretty appropriate metaphor, really, in Christian Porter's case, seeing as what got him in the end was largely self-inflicted. The coalition's standing with voters seems to be deteriorating as the PM himself starts to lose ground to his opposite number. And suddenly we've seen that the French have been ambushed by Australia, as Australia welches on a deal over submarines in a bid to lock in more tightly with a new Anglo-American security pact called AUKUS. Perhaps it might be called Totes AUKUS. I'm Mark Kenny from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute, and I'm delighted to be joined today by two brilliant scholars I'm sure you'll know well. Frank Bongiorno is Professor of History in the ANU School of History. Welcome, Frank. Thanks, Mark. And the ANU Visiting Fellow and Associate Professor at the University of Canberra's 5050 by 2030 Foundation, Chris Wallace. Welcome, Chris. Greetings. G'day. I should say welcome back. You've both been on Democracy Sausage many times before. Now, let's start with this bombshell announcement. You're going to have to excuse some of the puns here. The bombshell announcement last week and the deep umbrage it caused with France when we torpedoed the $90 billion submarine deal. Frank, How significant do you think this is likely to be? I mean, we're seeing a lot of blowback at the moment. Uh, You know, the PM's over in uh, just just in New York at the moment. He's having a meeting with Biden and, of course, with Boris Johnson and some others. But there's a lot of uh, angst about this in Europe. The French are deeply upset about not just losing the contract, but I suppose the humiliation of the way it was done. What's it look like to you? Well, yeah, for the time being, I think it is going to be that blowback that uh, is, is, you know, going to be most significant. I mean, it clearly has the potential to disrupt various European relationships, the relationship between 
the United States and uh, European NATO countries, between Britain, its its NATO allies in in Europe. For Australia, very difficult to know at this stage. I mean, we're talking about you know, kind of investigating and and uh, exploring possibilities for future uh, submarine construction, which uh, at, at best are going to be available in 20 years' time. I think it'll be hard for a lot of people to get too excited about uh, that as, a you know, some sort of great turning point in modern Australian history. But it, it does obviously have big implications for Australia's relationship with China, I mean, our colleague at the ANU, Hugh White, for, for many years, um, you know, had this theory, I guess, about the China choice, which was really the notion that Australia need to avoid having to make that choice as far as it possibly could, that Australian diplomacy, uh, you know, should not, you know, be about choosing uh, the United States or China, but, you know, to, to, to actually find a place, a space, if you like, between those, you know, one rising superpower and, and perhaps one ailing one. And I, I guess, you know, perhaps the significance of where we are at the moment is that Australia, or at least this government, has decided to make that choice and it's chosen decisively for the United States. And that clearly does have um, potentially very great implications for how Australia relates to the world in the future. I mean, I don't know what to make of a lot of the the public commentary in, in in recent days, which talks about you know this being a kind of ANZUS 1951 moment, we've also had a lot of commentary uh, that's very critical of it. You know, from people who are expert in uh, strategic studies in in the whole issue of nuclear submarines, who uh, you know Hugh White's one of them, in fact, who who basically sees what Australia's done as quite disastrous for a range of relationships and more generally for its strategic outlook. So. I think it's a lot more ambiguous. Uh, in the first day or two, I mean, obviously Labor jumped up and, and, and said it was a good thing, but we want more detail and we're concerned about the waste of the project that's being abandoned. But, you know, I think as, as things have panned out in the days since, the, the sheer messiness of this, it's, as you say, it's, its effect on Australia's bilateral relationship with France, which matters. France is an important, uh, mature power that Australia has a long-standing relationship with. That's problematic. It's problematic in terms of Australia's uh, ambition for a free trade agreement with the European Union, which has been going on, you know, for, for years now. And I think that's probably dead in the water, at least for, for, for some time. So it clearly has major implications. It's historic importance I'm less certain about. And I, I think, you know, historians tend to be pretty careful, I think about announcing great turning points when, you know, you're sort of dealing with the contemporary, when you're dealing with what are effectively current affairs. It's a really good point, isn't it, Chris, that uh, sort of trying to understand, uh, you're a historian as well, so trying to understand the weight of events contemporaneously is 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 a difficult thing. You don't know how events are going to play out subsequently and how that, how that will affect the interpretation of those events. But I mean, Frank mentioned the sort of ANZUS 1951 moment. There was also, of course, the, the moment of John Curtin declaring that, you know, that Australia looks to the United States without, what, it, what was the term, Frank? It was it without? Uh, free of any pangs as to our traditional links or kinship with the United Kingdom. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, yeah, pretty hard to know. But what, what do you think, Chris, in terms of, I guess, the ordinary voter interpretation of this? This is pretty much going to be guesswork, I guess, on your part or an educated guess. But certainly there's a lot of commentary around, as Frank said, from security experts, from, you know, political commentators and the like. But 
How does a thing like this sort of play with ordinary voters? It's a, one of the farcical kind of side plays of Australian politics for a very long time now that a couple of marginal seats in South Australia that governments want to hold on to in critical times, especially when government is often held by such narrow number of seats, is driving really big decisions about defence material purchases and, as we've been led to believe by the Morrison government, epochal moments in uh, in Australian international relations with the world. Uh, I think one of the important things to do is to cut this whole thing down to size and look ex- look at exactly what has happened here. It is not the biggest thing that has happened in Australian international relations since ANZUS. What it is is it's a fairly sensible shift in a defence material purchasing decision of significant importance to Australia that's been pumped up into this extraordinary kind of treaty level, even though it's not actually a treaty at this stage, an issue of kind of treaty level importance by the Morrison government for political gain at massive cost to Australia's reputation internationally and our strategic interests. The idea that you could make a decision like this to dump a huge defence contract with a valued partner like France on mere hours' notice basically trashes Australia's standing in the world as a a partner nation that you can trust, whose word you can trust. The Morrison government four months has been having conversations with France about the troubled uh, submarine contract that, yes, you know, there were big problems around it, but at no point did it suggest it was walking away from the contract. So for French President Emmanuel Macron and his government to be blindsided is the most extraordinarily stupid and damaging thing any government could do for the reputation of Australia and its future dealings. Absolutely inexplicable. And this is now bubbling into the US media, which is reporting that the Biden administration is deeply regretting now leaving the square off with France to Australia, which has totally fumbled it, behaved deceitfully and disgracefully, with the consequence that this is not just a problem for Australia, it's a problem for NATO, because the French are now going, well, we thought Trump was bad, we thought we could trust the Biden administration and look what they've just been a party to. Uh, This is a really big deal, but not in the way that Morrison is telling us. It's it's a very sensible basic defence material decision that has been extraordinarily badly executed with massive damage for Australia and the US. Well, let's look at that uh, question of, you know, separating, as you did, the kind of structure of the deal or the new arrangement, the pivot, however you want to describe it, this new security pact and uh, material solution that Australia seems to have hit upon. But keep that to one side and just think about the how badly this has gone in terms of, as you described it, the execution of it. The Morrison government's often criticised, Morrison himself often criticised, you know, as being sort of strong on marketing, not so strong on actual product, all about the announcement, not so good on the on the follow-through or the, or even the details. Could, given the number of moving parts associated with this, could it have been done differently and still kept quiet? Or, or did it even need to be kept quite so quiet? This is kind of an interesting thing because I don't think in all of my time watching politics I've seen something of this significance come out of quite such blue sky 
I mean, it really did. There wasn't a single defence commentator, uh, you know, journalist in that area, uh, think tanker or whatever, who had predicted this. Suddenly, it just lobs on whatever it was uh, Tuesday night of last week, and might have been Wednesday night. And you know, the rumours start, and by seven a.m. the next morning, it's being formally announced by the three leaders: Boris Johnson, uh, Joe Biden, and the fellow from Down Under. Pal, um, so it was was Morrison's preoccupation just simply about the announcement and the French can be hanged. It was. It was a total classic Morrison announcement effect play. Now this is the problem you get when you have Hicks in power. <laughs> <laughs> Scott Morrison would not have the faintest idea about the proper way to do something like this. Let me tell you how it would be done. The whole world knew, you know, the pet shop parrot knew that the French submarine deal with Australia was not going well, yep. right? If you were going to make this sort of move, what you do is you behind the scenes in your engagement with the commercial partner and with their government, you structure expectations about what's ahead and why. So imagine this, Australia has decided, has realised there's an option to get nuclear-powered submarines, which enable our... our submarine fleet to do much farther-reach operations than could be done by the French Barracuda submarine. Which, by the way, we were insisting on modifying into diesel-electric from its current configuration as a French nuclear-powered submarine, which is probably half the reason why there were all these kinds of delivery problems in the early stages. This This goes to the heart of it in two respects. The first thing is the French contract suffered from the beginning by this ridiculous Australian expectation that from scratch, from the first sub, they were to be built in South Australia. When we don't have the knowledge base, we don't have the skilled engineers, technicians and so forth to actually do it. So in a huge operation like this, there's a big opportunity for Australia to get skill transfer. Uh, And, you know, you build the first couple in France, you have lots of Australian engineers and technicians working there, and then you bring them home to Adelaide and you build the rest here. That's how it would normally be done. You're quite right. We said to the French... We don't want nuclear subs. We want conventional ones. They had adapted their plans. If we had decided we wanted to go nuclear, right, one of the things that we would have said to the French is, look, you know, this contract's not going so well. We think maybe we, our needs need to be nuclear powered now because we need farther reach and obviously China in brackets there. And the French would have gone, look, the Barracuda is a nuclear powered vessel. You know, why don't we just swap out the non-nuclear for the nuclear powered Barracuda? And Australia at that point could have explained to the French the reason, and there's a very good reason not to do that, and it is this, that the Barracuda to support it as a nuclear-powered submarine requires a domestic nuclear industry that can feed and take care of the reactor on board. In contrast, the US-UK nuclear-powered submarine that we're now going to acquire has a reactor that goes in at the, life, at the beginning of the submarine's life And 30 years later, when the submarine is decommissioned, that nuclear reactor comes out. It doesn't require a domestic nuclear industry. Now, Australia, it would be too fraught to develop a nuclear industry. That would have been clear to the French why we were going to go with the other sub. You know, it's a material reason. It's a sound reason. They would have been furious, but they wouldn't have been humiliated, right? And what would have happened is behind the scenes, these talks would have rumbled on and 
foreign minister to foreign minister, defence minister to defence minister, prime minister to president. Talks would have been happening behind the scenes to prepare the French for this, to lay the ground for the segue, to come up with mutually agreed lines. The French would have expressed their displeasure. We would have moved on. But instead, this completely hit, ham-fisted humiliation of a significant foreign partner in France, one that I might add has been working hard within the EU to advance Australia's position on many Pacific issues, you know, absolutely unnecessary, hick, hopeless and terrible. Yes, well, I think uh, you've made your your, your views very clear there, Chris, and uh, uh, very well put indeed. Frank, looking at it from another perspective in terms of the, the pact itself, this AUKUS pact and the other you know, there are other elements in it, including you know missiles and and of course um, strategic commitments and involvement of those major uh, partners of Australia, Britain and, and the United States. It is really interesting to look at this from a, a broader diplomatic perspective. I mean, as Chris has just laid out, the the, the, the sort of micro handling of this has been an utter disaster really in terms of uh, certainly Australian-French relations or Australian-European relations, really, as we'll see with the stalled European free trade talks as a result of this. But looking at the, the sort of broader strategic diplomacy of this, if, if you think back 18 months, two years, Australia's, you know, kind of uh, has this escalating crisis with, with China. We see a progressive series of, you know, trade lines that uh, become subject to prohibitive tariffs and so forth. China using its economic weight to to punish Australia. We see the freeze of you know no contact between ministers and and all these kinds of things, and we get a little bit of sort of minor level lip service from other nations. But essentially, we're out there fighting the fight by ourselves. You know, there's the odd thing that's sort of mumbled by the odd Japanese uh, source that says, you know, we, we you know we, we admire Australia's muscularity in this. We of course wouldn't do it ourselves, but um, you know we admire that. So if you if you're if bearing all that in mind, now scroll forward to now. We've got and it's happening in New York right now. It's been happening, as Chris said, with the French for a while now. We've just sort of thrown that back in their face, but uh, we now have the United States and United Kingdom and Europe, Europe and other powers essentially validating Australia's position and saying that the democratic world will not allow its members to be picked off or subject to undue bullying or coercion by China. That is a pretty significant step forward in terms of protecting Australia's position in the context of that diplomatic row. Well, it's all about China, isn't it? It's all about China. I mean, Australia has... um engaged in front-running, which is also Morrison's way, I guess, and most obviously in in the matter of an inquiry into the origins of coronavirus. Mm. Australia went out there, frankly, very little diplomatic support and essentially was made to carry the can or volunteered to carry the can, and it did damage Australia's relationship with, with China. There was uh, I think pretty obvious retaliation ar- ar- around trade, um, and more generally, I think you know Australia has uh, become much more belligerent. Uh, the running on on Australia's China policy, in terms of public statements, has often been left to China hawks on the backbench, or um, you know sitting on this or that parliamentary committee, rather than 
you know, major figures, senior ministers in the government. I mean, one striking aspect of the current uh, situation is is the invisibility of Maurice Payne. Uh, where is she? What's she saying? What's she doing? Who would know? So, you know, it, it is all about China. There are continuities here, obviously. You know, one thinks back to uh, the Gillard government's uh, very strong desire to get the United States more engaged with um, regional security, the Darwin decision, for instance, back in, what, 2011 to have um, Marines effectively, uh, you know, circulating through Darwin. We, we can see this in, in that kind of lineage as well. But, it, you know, it, it also clearly is, is about a deteriorating relationship with China, uh, a desire uh, to get the United States much more engaged uh, with the region in a, in a kind of containment of China. But, you know, the bottom line, Mark, I think with all of these is one that, you know, again, the strategists keep coming back to Taiwan is, is uh, you know, the kind of critical um, site, if you like, for, for likely conflict. Uh, if uh, China, you know, were to attack Taiwan, you know, the questions that arise are, you know, would the United States uh, respond or um, perhaps how would it respond? Uh, and if it did respond, uh, would it actually win a war? I mean, it really does come back to some pretty old-fashioned sort of calculations about peace and war and, you know, the way that the international relations work. And, you know, this is all about, obviously, deterrence and it's about, yes, muscling up to China. But in the end, China is the predominant regional power and and the, the, the willingness of the United States to uh, confront China, the capacity even of the United States to confront China in view of public opinion, I, I don't think inspire much, it inspires much confidence. And that, that's really the problem at the heart of, of the kind of decision that Australia has now made. It's, it desperately you know, wants the United States involved. And again, one can see that in a very long lineage, you know, going right back to really the 19th century, if you like, the 1800s. You know, Australia's always wanted the United States uh, more involved in, in the defence of the region. Well, perhaps it's just succeeded in that. I mean, perhaps uh, that's what needs to also be understood here for all the cumbosity, if I can invent that word, around the way this has been done, is it possibly an argument that Australia has succeeded in getting some muscle behind its contest with China? No, no look, it, it's, a, it's a big mistake to think that that's what's happened here. There is no obligation even under ANSYS, let alone this latest defence material arrangement, that the US will automatically defend Australia under a situation of attack. It is not automatic. It's a very big assumption and it's a wrong assumption. True, but the PM is in New York at the moment for bilaterals and so forth, but also for a meeting of the Quad, the first ever leaders meeting of Japan, India, US and Australia. Now, the Quad's often been criticised as a sort of a China containment grouping. Up until now, it hasn't been at leader level. There's been one leader level meeting that was during COVID and therefore done virtually. This is the first face-to-face one. So the atmospherics of it suggest that the US is starting to switch its focus, pulling away from the Middle East and switching its focus. That's true, but the, but the change in atmospherics does not mean a change in the US's obligation or otherwise to do something about Australia in a situation of attack. I, I think this, you know, we're... We, we, really got a bit unhinged in our China debate in Australia. 
while living under a government which loves a bit of sword rattling uh, based on the assumption that the US would come to our aid. The US is under no formal treaty obligation to come to our aid at all. It, it will do it if it chooses to do so, as it, as luckily for us it, it did in World War Two. So, well, there's the ANZUS Treaty, which again I accept doesn't compel any of the parties, but that is a treaty uh, which has been invoked. We, in fact, invoked the ANZUS Treaty ourselves in relation to September 11. As you know, look, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to take a quick break now just because we're at that point, but we'll continue this discussion in just a moment. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. We were just talking before the break, obviously, about uh, the uh, the treaty obligations or otherwise of the US, the nature of the alliance that exists as a result of ANZUS or AUKUS or, 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 or general expectation. Chris, you, you, you think it's been well overstated and that uh, the, whole, the whole debate about Australia's relationship with China is being uh, somewhat reductive. It's it's been a very fast and loose debate in an unhelpful way. You know, China is is not a the Chinese government are not nice people, right? They're a bunch of expansionist thugs. Human rights are a dead letter in their country. You know, I'm I'm no great China dove. On the other hand, Australia needs to develop a realism fast in its public debate about what's at stake here now. Mark, you're a prime age male. How do you feel about suiting up and militarily going to defend on the ground the sovereignty of Taiwan? I'm thinking probably you're not that up for it. Well, I got a bad back and flat feet and <laughs> double vision. More, more seriously, is would the American public be up to it? I mean, you know, I think that's uh, probably more critical than than Australia's disposition. It's It's... You know, w- would American public opinion be, be willing to uh, back an, an administration that co- to, to con- confronting China over Taiwan? Is, I- is the American strategy, therefore, cognizant of that reality? Because you're absolutely right. This has been a trend in, in American politics for a while now, and Trump was very much articulating this, uh, you know, getting away from these forever wars and not fighting other people's fights for them and so forth. Of course, Trump had big problems with you know NATO countries not you know spending enough on defence and relying too much on the United States. Is the US essentially saying, well, Australia's often been criticised as the deputy sheriff in the region, and uh, Australia's obviously you know pretty desperate, as Chris said, to have the American uh, protection all the time. So we lock them in with some of our material, our hardware, our technology, and we require them to be part of essentially that 
deterrence umbrella, that that quad, that that uh, containment approach, part of which would operate with long-range naval assets, in, in this case submarines, uh, in places that would perhaps, <laughs> and the whole thing's kind of laughable in a way because it's so far off. If, if Xi Jinping really wants to move on Taiwan, and he says he does, I mean, let's not mince our words here, he openly says that the reunification of China with Taiwan is a um, priority. So it might just actually accelerate his moves because there is some 20-year, 25-year lag between when Australia actually gets these these submarines anyway. But uh, is it possible that Australia is being essentially co-opted into into a US strategy that is that recognises domestically that they're not going to put troops on the ground in other places anymore, but they are going to use their technology and find ways of leveraging up, you know, the strategic power of that technology through allies, compliant allies like Australia. Yeah, and I, I suppose, you know, when seen in in those terms, it, it does have resemblances to what happened in 1950-51 when uh, the United States effectively entered into a series of uh, treaties around the globe, of which ANZUS was simply one example, uh, aimed at containing the Soviet Union. We got ANZUS not because of any great virtue on Australia's part or, you know, because of our willingness to sign a, treaty, a, a peace treaty with Japan or any of those explanations. It's pretty clear Australia got ANZUS in 1951 because it suited the United States, because it was in line with uh, that, that administration's uh, basically uh, movement towards containment and, and containment kind of, if you like, on the cheap, you know, that, that it was about trying to contain also um, a defence expenditure. And, you know, in a sense, that's what we're dealing with in, in, in a way here as well. I mean, we, we're, we're talking about this because, you know, we have a new administration in Washington that clearly has shifted towards a, a, a much more, I suppose, uh, confronting approach to China, which is seeking to, to contain it. I mean, Biden does seem to have, um, and I could be wrong about this, but he does seem to have a, a rather old-fashioned power politics Cold War view of the world in which great powers uh, um, basically confront one another and, and, and the, the United States needs to contain a rising power, otherwise it will be overcome by it. And, you know, it, it seemed, it's an old-fashioned view, uh, but also one that, that you know, is, is a very powerful way of, of dealing with, with international relations. It's called realism, yeah. you know, and, and Australia, yeah, as you say, is being drawn into essentially American strategy. So Morrison will claim great credit. Uh, I mean, I think a lot of the uh, talk of car key elections is well and truly overblown. You can't make a car key election. It's got to have resonance with, with the public. And we've had them occasionally in the past, but they're a rarity. Um, but yeah, I mean, great publicity for, for for Morrison. But it's happened because of changes in in US strategy. Well, look, speaking of things that have been handled ineptly, let's look at a more domestic matter now. The uh, the the matter I mentioned in the introduction, Christian Porter's uh, eventual departure. What what do you think of the way Morrison handled this, Chris? Uh, he um, he did it for a while, and he decided that he was going to refer Christian Porter's. Uh, announcement or declaration of a blind trust that had met some significant part of his legal fees, he was going to refer that to the head of his department to determine whether it, uh, you know, breached ministerial standards, which blind Freddie could see it did. I mean, everyone uh, could see that uh, this was 
clearly not a blind trust and clearly a mechanism for essentially accepting a lot of money from donors unspecified. What's your assessment of the way Morrison handled that? It's the latest in a long series of missed opportunities by Scott Morrison to show himself as a person of integrity interested in standards in government. And in that sense, I think it's, you know, a continuing disappointment uh, that the leader of our nation can't occasionally just clearly stand up and say, this is wrong, the minister's got to go. And even when the minister did go, uh, it, w- it was interesting, I thought, the language that, that Morrison used where he, he put pretty well all of the onus for that decision on Porter. He didn't, as some prime ministers in the past might have done, uh, he didn't say, well, I've, I've asked for his resignation because need to protect the ministerial standards. Uh, I understand that he, he made an error of judgment here. He acted... He could have said he acted in good faith. I mean, you know, he could have used a, a range of ways to sort of soften the blow. But essentially, he, what he said was that Christian Porter faced either outing the donors or or uh, or being in breach of the standards, which I guess was, was true. But Morrison didn't even take the credit for the outcome in, in that sense. Scott Morrison has a consistent record of standing shoulder to shoulder with Christian Porter and supporting him. Don't forget, we're only several weeks out from the Prime Minister's decision to, uh, when the Leader of the House, Peter Dutton, had to isolate in Queensland, uh, Scott Morrison made the deliberate move to appoint Christian Porter to his old job that he lost in the fracas earlier in the year. He made him acting Leader of the House in a very pointed move over Peter Dutton's deputy who would normally have just slotted into that position. So Scott Morrison has continued to reinforce his support for Porter. Uh, This is the latest example. People in the seat of Pearce in Western Australia will have the opportunity to cast a vote and express their view of Christian Porter and his Prime Minister's uh, management of what can only be seen as a, a cataclysmic slide in ministerial standards. Personally, Mark, I'm looking forward to Parliament resuming and seeing what the Privileges Committee does with this because we still have the extraordinary situation of an MP sitting in Parliament having being willing to accept the donation of a vast sum of money from allegedly anonymous donors, itself a breach of the rules under which MPs are supposed to operate. Yeah, you can still carry influence with an MP by making a donation, just as you can carry influence with a minister. Uh, I noticed the PM sort of made that distinction. He said, well, I, we've, we've dealt with the ministerial part of it. As far as being the boss of Christian Porter, well, that's the electors of Pierce, not the not not me as Prime Minister, which was a novel interpretation of – I mean, this was sort of non-leadership 101 at, that, at a critical moment, it seemed to me. Frank, do you think that voters are as animated, though, about things like – you know, conflict of interest and uh, donations, transparency and these sorts of things, as animated as those of us who watch politics for a living and who, you know, who write and commentate about it? Yeah, probably not. I mean, I, um, I, I you know, it, it is striking, though, that uh, a number of the independents have taken up this issue of the integrity of the political system, you know, issues around uh, corruption, um, political donations and the like, and there is clearly a major push by independents, uh, mainly within coalition-held seats. Um, you know, building on successes that we've seen 
uh, in recent elections, or indeed you could say in elections over the last 20 years or so. Um, you know, so it, I think it is one of the, the drivers um, behind that. I think there is a, a gathering perception, though, that, that the ways in which politics is done in, in Canberra um, are simply not measuring up to, to, to basic democratic expectations and norms. And, you know, there's examples of this on, on both sides, but, you know, clearly if you, if you can accept a million dollars, if that's what it is, a large sum of money secretly in this way, there is a problem with the whole issue of financial disclosure. And it's interesting that Crikey just this week suggests that over 20 years the political parties between them have accepted something like a billion dollars in in effectively secret donations because they come in under what is a very high threshold for the federal government. It's about what is it, fourteen thousand or something, compared with much lower thresholds at the at the state and uh, territory levels. Yeah, and and also just that that broader issue, I think, of of you know sort of influence peddling that I think has been an important discourse during uh, the pandemic, in particular, the way in which. You know, it's, it, opportunities, if you like, have been taken up by a number of quite large businesses to to you know enhance their profits through schemes like um, uh, the uh, the JobKeeper, um, the ways in which you know parts of the fossil fuel industry have also exploited the situation to push gas along. I think there is a growing sense vested interests are playing too great a role in in Canberra and. This kind of uh, episode is is seen, I think, in that broader context. I mean, we probably do get more exercised about it than many, but the the notion that that you know um, there's corruption in Canberra, uh, that it flourishes partly because the integrity system is, is inadequate, that there's no federal ICAC. I think these ideas are, you know, they're beginning to gain a greater foothold outside the usual suspects in the political class. I think. You're making a, an absolutely accurate point there, Frank, and it's it's pretty crucial, especially when you look at things like climate policy. But I think just getting back to the specifics of the Porter situation, just think, you know, one of the reasons Scott Morrison probably went so soft on Porter for so long and gave him that space to to voluntarily go to the backbench was because there was a risk that Morrison's government would fall should Porter withdraw his support for it, Right. So, so you've got that on one side. On the other side, you've got in Christian Porter, an indis- a cabinet minister who must be under such financial pressure that he was prepared to trash his ministerial career in order to preserve this million-dollar anonymous donation, right? So if you're a person under that kind of financial pressure, you're exactly the kind of person that can be bought and sold by the alleged anonymous donors. So I think if, if federal parliament lets this situation just sit with Porter suffering no sanction uh, if he's allowed not to disclose the identity of the donors and still keeps the money. Well, that is kind of pretty much parliamentary integrity shot. Malcolm Turnbull's characterisation of it as being as though a man in a balaclava has walked into your desk, slapped down a briefcase with a million dollars in it, is exactly right. Christian Porter, if he if he can continues in the situation, even on the backbench, where he could make or break a government, that is an extraordinary situation in any democracy. So, wow. Absolutely, and that's taking Porter at his word that he doesn't know the notion, the identity of those donors. Now, I, I can't say, and I'd be very 
careful to make this point. I can't say that's not the case, but I think many people would raise their eyebrows at that whole suggestion and would also raise their eyebrows at the suggestion that anyone who had tipped in a few hundred thousand dollars or perhaps more into an account doesn't at some stage sidle up to said MP and 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 say, by the way, I'm the one who, you know, who bailed you out. At which point indebtedness exists in a political sense. And and that that remains the case for the entire time that Porter is in Parliament, whether he's a minister or not. And further, Mark, worse than that, if if Christian let's assume Christian Porter really doesn't know the, the identity of the donors. Let's let's accept that at face value. Anyone could come up to him and Precisely. say, I'm one of the donors, yeah. right? So that's the maximum opportunity for malign influence. I don't think you'd get away with it, Chris. I don't think he would actually, you know, it has to have some credibility. I don't think he would think Chris Wallace has, you know, paid uh, uh, this money in to get me out of this trouble. Well, he, he, could have, he could think I was being an extraordinary double agent in the way Australia was playing France, lying to its face and then, you know, <laughs> flipping. I mean, it's not good times in federal politics. Yeah, really. that's true. I think it's, it's one point I'd, I'd make about Morrison in all this too is, I mean, I've said and written this multiple times over the last few years, he is not a strong leader. Uh, and, and not only is he not a strong leader, he doesn't seem to want to be a strong leader. I mean, a strong leader would have sacked mm. Porter this week um, and, and would have, you know, tried to, to make political capital out of showing strength. But that's not Morrison's style of leadership. Um, that's not how he operates. He's deliberately left ambiguity around the standards expect, expected of ministers and now probably also of backbenchers because that is his style. He, he is a man who thrives on that kind of fluidity and ambiguity. He is a postmodernist, is Scott Morrison. Um, Actually, I, uh, I think of him more like that, 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 that cartoon of Homer Simpson captioned Cunning Like a Fox where Homer's has got his underpants on his head. I, th- I think, you know, the, thing, the other material thing in this situation is these are Scott Morrison's standards. Mm. Yes, well, look, let's. Uh, we've only got a couple of minutes left. So, what I want to do then is sort of, I guess, take what we've just been talking about and apply it more broadly. Because, uh, and this is an area, Chris, that, uh, well, we all have an interest in, but you have particular expertise in this uh, notion of uh, where the government sits at the moment. We're seeing some reasonably consistent polling putting the opposition ahead. Yesterday's news poll, for example, was quite interesting. I think it was 53-47, two-party preferred in favour of Labor, and it had Labor's primary vote actually ahead of the coalition. I think it was 38-37, which is um, I'm far more persuaded by the primary vote anyway, but there are a whole lot of reasons, and we all saw what happened in 2019. But what's uh, what's your sense? I mean, you've written a book, How to Win an Election, and you've also written a piece quite recently, How Not to Be Completely Seduced by the polls because, you know, that way lies, lies um, you know, all kinds of problems. Give us your assessment. The trouble with polls is, especially within their current state, is it's a bit like, you know, the Delphic Oracle looking at the chicken's entrails. You know, there's lots of scope for projection. Now, the Labor primary vote actually went back in this poll to 38. Mm, true. Now, 38, 38% primary vote was what? Julia Gillard won in 2010, which enabled her to form a minority government. So if you're a Labor optimist, you look at the two-party referred and you go, wacko, 53-47, new beauty, it's going to be a landslide. 
If you're a Labor hardhead, you look at that primary vote and go, oh, my God, up against the worst government in the post-war period, that's, that's pretty dire. If you're Scott Morrison looking at those, that, that, those polls, you'd be very worried about your own personal standing. His net approval rating is now, I think it's minus four, which is not that flash. Uh, still ahead of Anthony Albanese's, but you'd be looking at that Labor primary vote and after the against the backdrop of the previous election, and assuming that Anthony Albanese was still opposition leader, Scott Morrison would still be feeling relatively confident of being able to overtake Labor during the five weeks of the campaign. Now, you know, you look at these numbers and you look at the closeness of the election, and bearing in mind that the polls were uniformly wrong last election and have been tweaked in light of that experience, um, you know, you'd think we could be in a more comfortable position about understanding what's really going on. But no, we can't tell whether the tweaks to the pollsters' methods have worked or not until we test them against the next, next election result, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right, isn't it, Frank? I mean, it really, the, you know, political leaders always, uh, always try and say there's only one poll that counts, but it's trite, but it's also true. Well, that's right. I mean, we don't um, really know whether the polls are going to work this time round. Uh, so, yes, we've just got to wait and, and see. I mean, clearly there are issues that, you know, experts in this area have talked about in terms of how you how you pr- create a good sample these days, you know, when there are so many different ways in which, you know, people uh, you communicate with one another. You know, the, the old idea of ringing up someone on a landline and doing that a couple of thousand times and imagining you're going to get a great sample is well and truly over and clearly that's problematic from the point of view of, of polling. Um, on the issue of primary vote, Chris is right, 38% not great, but it's a hell of a lot better than 33%, which is uh, what Labor achieved at the last election. Basically, two in three uh, Australian voters uh, voted for parties mm. other than the Labor Party in the House of Representatives. Um, I think it's doubtful whether you need, you know, your 40% to win an election these days if you're the Labor Party. You know, they would want to break that barrier, but whether they actually need to break that barrier these days, I'm less certain. Um, The other issue that I think we're now, you know, going to see really um, probably for the foreseeable future is a large crossbench in in the lower house and that, um, you know, to me is incredibly interesting. It means that we may well see more minority governments. Um, uh, you know, you, you, you don't actually need many of them, as we've seen in the past, uh, f- for that to be uh, the, the outcome. Um, but, you know, the, I reckon the crossbench, you know, is probably going to grow rather than shrink, and, and that also has implications for how things pan out in the future and, again, you know, what kind of primary vote um, or, indeed, what kind of even two-party preferred vote you need to win an election. Yeah, that's very, that's that's quite right, and I guess we'd all agree that there are so many novel aspects to the environment in which this election is being held as well. The pandemic, obviously, being the prime one, but also just the reshaping of the the sort of fiscal economic dynamic, because no one's really talking about balancing the budget, or you know, a lot of that's kind of uh, removed as a kind of a frame that uh, that that um, many political arguments have been constructed on in recent elections. Look, thanks so much for your time, both of you, Chris Wallace and Frank Bongiorno. It's been really terrific, as always, having you on Democracy Sausage. Look forward to next time. Thanks so much, Mara. Thanks, Chris. Cheers. And that's it for Democracy Sausage for this week. Until next week, goodbye. Goodbye.